Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Holy Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for giving us day by day our daily bread. We thank you for watching over and keeping us. And no doubt you keep us from far more temptations and afflictions than we are aware of. And yet we thank you that you have given us the liberty to ask that we not be led into temptation, that we be delivered from evil, that we might ever lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We thank you for thy kingdom. And we know that of all the kingdoms of the earth, they all shall come to naught. But thy kingdom endures forever. We believe that we have seen and are seeing somewhat of thy kingdom and that we are in thy kingdom. And yet at the same time we would ask that if it would seem good in your sight that you might manifest more unto us so that we might live more holily, righteously, and godly in this present world to your honor and to your glory. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is found in the blood righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, my God, that we not take that for granted and that we not uh, use your justifying righteousness as an excuse for sin. We know that there are some that take your grace and turn it into lasciviousness. Help us not to do so. Help us not to be deceived in our own standing. And yet at the same time, bless us in such a way that our hearts be open to receive the riches of thy blessings and the bounties of thy grace. We would pray, our God, that you would bless the truth of the gospel to spread forth and go abroad throughout the land. We would pray, our Father, that you would raise up more godly men to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, and not just men uh, that uh, have a standing or uh, have somewhat of a... Uh, a place, as we might say, and yet in their profession, uh, from what we have learned 
through some uh, polls and things of that nature that more than 50% of preachers that profess to be uh, or men that profess to be preachers, maybe we should say, do not even have a biblical worldview. Astounding our God. Astounding that it is in such a uh, state. We know that you can change it if you will. And we pray, Father, that you might do so. Nevertheless, as we pray so often, ask that you would bless us to be faithful unto your word throughout the rest of our lives. For it's not how we begin that's important but it's how we end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come back now to uh, the book of Galatians. And we want to take up in verses 17 where Paul said, well, we left off last Lord's Day when he said, Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And oftentimes when preachers are honest with the Word of God, uh, they find out how many enemies they do have. And But uh, anyway, verse 17, They zealously affect you but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now. And to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. I want to look at this section uh, at this point. Paul had a great desire for the Galatians, as we have seen throughout. And his desire is that they be delivered from the era of Judaism. And that they be delivered from the era of Seeking people trying to seek uh, righteousness by their works. And we as sinful men and with our sinful nature uh, who are uh, children of God and who have been regenerated, we still have to battle that uh, the same battle because... Uh, we like to think sometimes that we've got to do more praying and do more Bible reading and more Bible studies in order to gain more uh, acceptance with God. And we ought to do more reading and studying, usually. But at the same time, I, I cannot say that. I've had people tell me sometimes when I ask them, how you doing? And I say, well, I'm doing all right, but I need to read the Bible more. I said, well... Uh, do you? I said, what's your work schedule? What all do you have to do? 
I don't know whether you do or whether you don't. You may. Most likely you could get more in. But uh, I don't want to put a burden on people that God hasn't put. And it's easy for us to do that. Uh, I'm retired. And I almost said what I usually say. <laughs> but anyway, I'm retired. And I can spend more time reading and studying. But a person that uh, is working eight hours a day and has a family and has chores around the house to do, uh, that individual uh, very likely doesn't have the same opportunity to, uh, and the same time frame. And so it would be unjust of me to try to impose uh, my regiment or retinue upon that individual. And so we don't want to do that. But at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm safe to say that all of us can do better. All of us could do better. Even though I have more time to study, uh, I know that I still waste a lot of time. And I don't know how to balance all that out sometimes, but uh, I'll leave that uh, unto the Lord in His own timing. But Paul talks about to be uh, that they uh, that the Judaizers are zealous, zealous toward those Galatians. The Judaizers, as well as all false teachers, are jealous. Are, excuse me, zealous in their cause. You can find people that are in error and that are publishing false doctrine. They're pretty zealous. And if you, not only in the religious world, but look in the economic and political world. I mean, they won't give up for anything. They've got one gold in mind, and that's all they can see. They're like a horse or a mule with blinders on. They can only look in one direction, and they cannot see outside of that one thing. And sadly, too often, such false teachers and Judaizers exhibit more zeal than sometimes believers. And that's sad. But it's, it's a reality, but uh, it also goes to prove that Satan is busy. <laughs> it reminds me of a preacher one time, was, it was said that he told uh, some woman, uh, he said, Sister so-and-so said, you're so kind, you have something to say good about everybody. He said, you probably have something good to say about the devil. She said, well, he's busy. <laughs> so, but I thought of that. But, and he is busy. That's for sure. He doesn't let up. And Judaizers are the same way. But the Judaizer has one thing that he wants. To increase his followers. He wants to increase his followers and spread his doctrine. They strive to increase their numbers and expand their cause. They're not inter interested in the well-being of those that they proselyte. 
We saw this somewhat in the second chapter of Galatians. In verse 4 particularly, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now notice what he says. First of all, they're false. They're false brethren. It may be your neighbor. It might even be a good friend. I've had people that I thought were good friends and sound that it seems like that they're more false brethren than they are otherwise. I have to leave that in the hands of the Lord. But when they are spreading doctrines that are not according to Scripture, then it makes me wonder, particularly when they say that the second coming of Christ was fulfilled in 70 A.D. I just don't see how that can be. If, if, it, if that was fulfilled in 70 A.D., where was the resurrection? And it says... Well, I quoted part of it, I think, in, in my prayer this morning, First John, that when He shall appear, that is, when Christ shall appear, we shall see Him as He is, and we shall be like Him. Well, I, I, I haven't seen Christ as He is, and I'm sure not like Him. But anyway, they're false brethren, and unawares they bring in their doctrine and they come in privily and spy out their with their liberty spy out against our liberty and this particular individual that I'm thinking about it seems as if that uh, that's all he talks about that's all he talks about he's got a social media page that's all he talks about. Nothing else but that. And so, it's just a constant thing. And all it's doing is bringing people into their bondage. Well, we could enlarge upon a lot of other different doctrines. There's a modern doctrine that has gone come around also of late. Uh, I forgot exactly the title that's given to it, but it's the fact that God doesn't know everything. And so, since God doesn't know everything, then uh, there are some things that are not under the sovereign control of God. Well, I ran into that before this new theology came along years and years ago when talking to some people among our own denomination that said that God doesn't know everything. That said there are some things that God uh, uh, chose not to know. Well, my question is, how can God choose not to know something if He doesn't know it? you got to know something is there if you're going to choose not to do anything with it. But there's all kinds of false teachings that could be 
and are. And false teachers will exclude. That will, in other words, they'll do everything they can to uh, shut out those who stand for truth so that uh, you cannot affect them or their followers. And like I said, such is the case not only with religious teachers. We see this in our own society now with the government, the news media, and everything else. In other words, they're not interested in truth. They shut out everything except what they want want to say and even make statements that is contrary to common sense. But what can we do? We can't change them. And we don't need to get bitter. We need to know the truth and contend for the truth as God would have us to and pray that God would bless us to live out our lives in peace and comfort. He may not do that. Many of our forefathers have suffered persecution under such. But Paul encourages the Galatians to be zealous in good things. In good things. What is it that you know that it's good for you to do? I'll just leave that with you right now. When we get to the fifth chapter of Galatians, we'll find some things that Paul lists. And Paul will say that there's no law against them and you can do them as much as you want to. So what what is a good thing that you know that God would have you to be doing? I just want you to stop and take inventory of your own self right now. You may be uh, going through some particular phase in your life that, uh, that is different from someone else. And something may come to mind that God may bring to you to your mind that you need to be doing. Well, be zealous about it. Be zealous about it. In a good thing, be zealous. Zeal is good. You know the old saying that sometimes people have zeal without knowledge. And that can be a bad thing. But zeal in and of itself is not bad. Zeal is not bad. If there's something that you know that you need to be doing, be zealous about it. And as Paul said here, he said in verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, not only when I am present with you. Too often believers exercise their zeal when the leader, maybe the pastor, when the leaders are present. But when the But when the leader is not around and they're left alone, they'll compromise. They'll compromise. Have you ever been tempted to compromise on something when you were by yourself that you wouldn't with somebody else is around? 
nothing may not come to mind at this time, but uh, you know as well as I do that sometimes it's easy to compromise when you're by yourself. Particularly if you're not convicted. You can know something is wrong, but you may not be convicted it's wrong. And therefore you'll compromise. If you're convicted that it's wrong, you won't compromise. You'll stand true to it, regardless of whatever it is. And Paul exhorts the brethren here at Galatia to be zealous in those things that are good and right, not only when he's present, but when he's absent. You remember what Paul said of the Philippians? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my present only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with excuse me, with fear and trembling. But notice what Paul said. You've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but in my absence. They were convicted. They didn't compromise. I've had preachers that would agree with me in private about certain doctrines, and yet when they got around a group that was more that didn't agree, they would follow them, even in my presence. Even in my presence. Makes you wonder. Makes you wonder, is it not? Or does it not? Well, we have to leave that with the Lord. Now, it is true that believers are encouraged and strengthened for battle when not only their leaders are present, but when others who are strong are present. Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. No, excuse me, chapter 4. You probably know what I'm going to read, but I want to get the context. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Beginning in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warmed alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's a whole lot easier to stand when you've got others 
that will stand with you. It's difficult to stand alone. It's difficult to be alone. It's difficult to live alone. Man is created not for uh, individuality, but it's even as the Lord told, uh, said with Adam in the beginning, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that people should basically just be alone. Some are shut up to it, and, and we have different situations like that, but it, it's not good. And when you're in the heat of the battle, particularly in the heat of the battle with doctrine, and you're the only one, it's not easy because you begin to doubt yourself. You begin to doubt yourself. I remember several years ago, back in the 60s, uh, my children always say when I'm talking about things in the past, it's the 70s, but this goes back to the 60s. And some of you have read a pamphlet that I wrote called The Power of the Word. Well, when I studied and came to the conclusion that I have in that pamphlet, I didn't, uh, hardly anybody that agreed with me. And I thought maybe I'd gone crazy. Some of my fellow ministers uh, didn't understand it. Uh, thought it wasn't uh, written very well. This, that, and the other. So I went to an old, older minister that I had very much confidence in. And sat down with him and asked him if he thought... Well, I first uh, told him what my overall premise was. And he said, yeah. I said, I believe that's right. But he wasn't too well accepted among the brethren either because he was supposed to be a man that had a lot of strange ideas and opinions. And then sometime later, I was up in Kentucky uh, preaching and I preached the contents of that message. And this old minister that was well respected throughout our denomination stood up behind me and said, what this young man has preached is the truth. And our people have lost it and we need to regain it. Well, that put iron in my blood. And then later on, I was in Indiana and preached it at an association there. And there was an old minister that I'd heard a lot about that I never had met before that was supposed to have been uh, uh, well-grounded. And he amended. it. So you can imagine what strength it gave to me. Three-fold cord is not easily broken. But there were many, many days, many weeks, probably months that I went, you know, you just... It's not easy to stand alone when you come up on something and you think, well, am I crazy or am I not? But when you go back to the Word of God, 
You go back to the Word of God and you study it again and again and again. And you stand upon that and be zealously for a good thing. Early in my Christianity, I was somewhat gung-ho on election. And out in public, I would meet some good, strong Armenian that would uh, tangle me up in, in uh, arguments. But it did me good. Because I had to go back and study the Scriptures again. And again. And again. So be zealously affected in a good thing. And if you can be around others that have the same uh, opinion as you, then be thankful for that. And hold on to it. Because as Ecclesiastes says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. But each believer still is going to have to exercise himself so that he can stand when he is alone. Obviously, it's only by the strength and the power of the Lord. We'll look in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. we we'll start in verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So the writer of Hebrews here is writing to some professed Christians and he's telling them, you need to be stronger than you are. A child that's just born, he can't eat a steak, can he? All he can consume is the milk of his mother. But he said, you're old enough, you ought to be able to eat not only some good vegetables, you need to be able to eat meat, strong meat, even some tough meat. And some of you know what tough meat is, don't you? The more you chew it, the bigger it gets. <laughs> but uh, it's, if you keep working at it, it'll go down and it'll do you good. But he said you need to uh, be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. But then he says in verse 13, For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, grown up, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, you know what exercise does for you. Even you children uh, know what exercise will do for you. It'll make you stronger. It'll give you a better appetite, but it'll make you stronger. And the more you exercise, the stronger you are. Well, the more we exercise ourselves in the Word of God, 
the stronger we are with the truths of God as God reveals them unto us. And therefore, we need to have our senses exercised so that we can discern between good and evil. Between good and evil. You say, well, I'm, I'm not all that smart. I'm not all that intelligent. I, I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Y'all have heard me speak of old dear sister down in Hornwall, Tennessee. She passed and gone on several years ago by the name of Sister Annie Henson. She didn't know how to read or write when she was converted. But she taught herself how to read and write so that she could read the Scriptures. I've also read some of the poems that she wrote. Very good. But one day some JWs came to her door said, we want to talk to you about the Lord. She said, well, that depends on what you've got to say. <laughs> so they started talking. It wasn't too long. She said, you've said enough. That's goodbye and shut the door. Well, if you were to talk to her about the uh, imputation of the uh, propitiatory work of Christ, that probably wouldn't mean much to her. But you talk to her about Jesus Christ dying for her sin, she knew what you were talking about. And she was one of those ladies that she was not ashamed of her emotions. I've seen her go through the handshake at various times, shouting, and said, take your money, but give me Jesus. And she meant that. Because one Saturday she was at home alone, and she didn't have any money to give to the house of God the next day. And she was on her knees praying that God might show her something or reveal something to her or, or let her know how she might be able to uh, get some money. And somebody was knocking on the door. And there's people from the University of Tennessee going around trying to get uh, some extra cats to run experiments on. And she had a yard full of cats. And she was able to sell two or three cats we shut the door, she rejoiced that God had given her some money for the house of God. And while I'm bragging on Sister Annie, <laughs> I'll take it another step further. Y'all have heard me. I know you older ladies know what I'm fixing to say. One day she was going to the house of the Lord and her husband was not a believer. And he said, if you leave, if you go to the house of the Lord, then... If you go to the house of the Lord, then you, well, I won't be here when you get back. And she said, well, honey, said, I hope you're here when I get back. But you can only go with me to the grave. But my Lord Jesus Christ has gone beyond the grave. And she went, to, she went on to the house of the Lord. Trembling all the way there. 
had a hard time because she was worried while she was at the house of the Lord of what's going to happen. She came back, walked around behind, around by the side of the house. He was sitting there on the front porch in the rocking chair. She walked up on the porch, kissed him on the forehead, said, Honey, I'm glad that you're here. She went in the house, cooked him his favorite meal. He never ate a bite. But this is one of those stories that turned out good in the end because he, five years before he died, God blessed him to know the Lord. And she said it was hardly a day went by that she did not, uh, he did not uh, ask her forgiveness for how mean he was to her. But my point is this. Here was a lady. She didn't have... she. Didn't know how to read or write. She wasn't highly intelligent as far as the world is concerned. But she knew the Lord and she knew the scriptures and she was zealously affected in her service to the Lord. She was zealously affected in her service to the Lord. Well, beloved, if you exercise yourselves in the truths of the scriptures, you too can be zealously affected. Back in chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, we lost Sister Sharon. I don't know. Try it again, see if something, anyway. Uh, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you, but now, uh, with you now, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. We pointed out earlier Now Paul used the word brethren several times to show his love and care for the saints at Galatia. But notice here in verse 19, he he is more tender. Notice, my little children. My little children. I believe that this is another reason to believe that when he called them foolish Galatians at the beginning, he was addressing them more as a loving father instead of a harsh rebuke. He called them foolish Galatians. But if you just look at that alone without reading the rest of the epistle and how he speaks to them endearingly as brethren and now my little children. My little children. Paul reveals his desire as a parent that travailed and labored extremely so that Christ would be seen in them. In fact, the Greek word travail 
It's only used three times. And in each place it gives the idea of a woman laboring in childbirth. Let's look at these. First of all, here in Galatians 4.17. And then Galatians 4.27. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that beareth not. Break forth and cry thou that travaileth not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. And then the other place is Revelation 12 and 2. I'll turn and read that one quickly. Will I read the first one? And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word to express <coughs> his desires and his burden for the Galatians that they be delivered from Judaism. Now you ladies, mothers, can understand this travailing far more than fathers can. But Paul calls them his little children and he travails in birth that they might be delivered. That Christ would be formed in them. I can tell you as a minister, I know what it is somewhat to be in great turmoil and great afflictions of mind and spirit and I don't know how to say it any other way but when you're trying to deliver someone from error it's not easy it's not easy particularly when that individual is incorrigible But we should always have a desire to deliver anyone from error. Not only a fellow believer, but if we meet someone, a stranger on the street, and God gives an open door that we can talk to them. Sometimes it's quite evident within a few minutes you can't say anymore because in doing so you wind up casting pearls before swine. And so you have to leave it at that. But Paul labored. Labored. And he exercised and exerted much exercise so that the Galatians but not only the Galatians, but everyone, wherever he preached, wherever he preached, wherever he labored, wherever he traveled, traveled, 
He did everything that he could in order that Christ and Christ alone should be the focal point. Let's look at a few passages. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 14 and 15. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons. Notice that. My beloved sons. I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the Gospel. Now, I don't have time to preach another sermon on the utility of the gospel. But when Paul says he was a father to these Corinthians, that didn't mean that they were born again through him. It just meant that he was a, uh, like a father to them in teaching and instructing them. In fact, one of the scriptures in the Old Testament, Joseph was called a father to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was over Joseph, wasn't he? But Joseph was a father to Pharaoh. How was that? Joseph taught and instructed Pharaoh. And you can find that. I've got a, a, a whole list of passages here, about 15 or 20 verses <laughs> to support that. But Paul said, I have begotten you to the gospel. He, he didn't mean that he had given them life, but that he had brought and taught them the truth of the gospel. Look in 2 Corinthians. Well, there's another one in 1 Corinthians that I didn't have listed down. I want to bring that to you in the second chapter. Of 1 Corinthians. He says in verse, chapter, uh, chapter 2 verse 1. And I brethren when I came to you. I came not with excellency of speech. Or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was determined that wherever he went. To, and to whomever he preached, that Christ would have the preeminence and not himself. Paul was a wise man. Paul was an educated man. And I'm sure that he could speak with much eloquence, but he didn't try to use oratorical phrases to sway the crowd. He wanted the Word of God to have the impact on the heart. You know, if an orator comes along and sways the crowd, a better orator can come along and sway them further. 
one way or the other. Second Corinthians chapter <coughs> Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Verse 15, <clears throat> Paul said, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul said, <clears throat> He would spend and be spent in order to get the gospel across. We'll look at two more. Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not labored in vain, neither labor in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul's essentially saying, if I get killed for the gospel's sake, then that's good. And then lastly, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 7 through 11, he has this same spirit. <clears throat> but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. <clears throat> you know, a good nurse is good. But here, this nurse Paul uses is one who cherishes her own children. If she's a good nurse, She's really going to be a good one for her children. And Paul said, this is how I was with you. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our, our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preach the gospel unto you, the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So you see, Paul had this same disposition, not only with the Galatians, with the Corinthians, with the Thessalonians, and we could supply other passages as well. Well, Paul said he would that he was there instead of having to write this epistle to them, lest he be misunderstood. But we'll take up there this afternoon, the Lord willing, because it'd be too much for me to go to in order to try to get it all done before uh, time to quit. <laughs> Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul. A man of great determination. A man of great discipline. A man of great wisdom and education. And no doubt, a graduate, a graduate in rhetoric, but he desired to be like a father, yea, even as a nurse ministering to her own children. He knew how to be stern. He knew how to stand for truth. But he had a spirit about him that he would not want to quench a smoking flack nor to break a bruised reed. that He might bring one unto the glorious liberty of the justifying righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, our God, to have the same spirit of Paul as we endeavor to serve You in the capacity that You have called us in each and every person. In Jesus' name, Amen.